0: Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is a writer, a broadcaster and, in the words of the Washington Post, a rock star mythologist. Having studied classics at university, she embarked on a 12-year career as a comedian before turning to writing. She published her first novel in 2014 and became known for her feminist retellings of Greek myths. A Thousand Ships about the Trojan War was shortlisted for the 2020 Women's Prize for Fiction. She also appears often on BBC Radio 4's Front Row and Saturday Review, as well as presenting her own show. Her latest book is Stone Blind, about the famously monstrous Medusa. It offers a new perspective on the snake-haired gorgon and asks readers to see her not as a monster or a victim, but as a person. Natalie Haynes, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thanks for having me. It's really lovely to have you here. We've been trying to sort of make this happen for a while and it's great to finally have you in here because, of course, I've been following your career, which has chopped and changed and <laughs> from comedy to tragedy and then hey, a bit of both
1: yeah exactly yeah no definitely don't
0: when i go and speak in schools
1: which i do occasionally um and they say essentially how can i have your career I just say, don't be me
0: <laughs> it's a terrible <laughs> idea to get a proper job <laughs> well i want to know how you do be you. And let's go back to the beginning. So All you're right. born in Birmingham.
1: Yes. Literary family, classicists? My parents are retired teachers, so no classicists. No, my dad taught history, which I guess is as close as we get, and my mum taught English, and then went into adult education and prison education. So I had quite bookish parents, I guess, but no, not a not a writer E family and not a classicsy family.
0: And Greek and Latin, was, we, was that taught at <laughs>
1: school? Or? It was. I was really lucky because nobody else in my family has studied it or is interested. I mean, they're interested in it now, sort of, you know, in that Yes, Natalie kind of way. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I started, I was just really lucky. My school had loads of classics. And so I started Latin at 11, I think, and Greek at 14. I took triple classics A-levels. I took Latin, Greek and ancient history, which nobody would allow a child to do now, rightly, because that is too specialist, obviously, uh, and certainly too young, probably, whatever I would have been, 16, 17, to be specialising that hard. But yeah, I was I was super lucky. I had great teachers. So, I mean, I did dozens of GCSEs, 11 GCSEs. So, I, you know, I guess I could have gone off and become a scientist, had enough qualifications in them all. But classics was the only thing that held my heart. Why? So, I don't know. I think uh, Latin's a sort of gateway drug because it pretends to be maths for a really long time. And I both liked and was good at maths because it's basically a substitution code translating Latin. Latin's a super logical, super simple language, which is why I always find it heartbreaking, but also infuriating when people have been told. I quite often get people at my gigs who are retired now in their 70s or 80s, and they were cut away from classics at usually at secondary school level, because they were told they weren't clever enough to study it. And they've spent their whole lives feeling not good enough for Latin. It's like, you were always good enough for Latin. Your teacher was a horrible person. But it's also not not a very difficult language. So, and you never have to speak it. So that thing that that British people have being really embarrassed, they'll get it wrong. You don't have to worry. No one's going to appear in a toga and tell you off. It's fine. Um, (laughs) And so I started it and very much saw it as a mathematical process an equation essentially each sentence and then you start greek which is insane and has you know 24 words for the (laughs) and you go oh okay so i've got the present tense perfect tense. Wait, the aorist? Wait, hmm? <laughs> say what now? <laughs> I've got single, I've got plural, and I've got dual because when don't I need that? And so that's a much more complicated language, but of course, to me anyway, it's, it's also more beautiful. And so it sort of snuck into my life. It pretended to be all practical and sciency. And then suddenly there I was caught up in a a melee of myth and history and philosophy. And that's the thing with classics. You get to study a whole civilization. And it's really, there aren't that many subjects where you can do that, where you could go, as I did, to university and go, okay, well, I want to read, you know, epic poetry from... Homer to Virgil but I also want to read tragedy and satire and did I mention I don't want to read any of those things because I would rather be studying history or art or archaeology or it's just extraordinary.
0: And world. I mean the stories themselves oh I mean they're, they're great stories. <laughs> yeah, they're they? Really good and
1: also I think what's quite unusual about Greek myth in particular and the way it's repurposed by the Romans by Ovid and by Virgil in particular is that it really centres human beings You know, you can find loads of myth cycles where there are gods behaving in an entirely other way, you know, with giant monsters or, you know, a giant tree in Norse myth. And it's like, well, these are amazing origin stories, but you don't see yourself in them particularly. Whereas Greek myth, the unit of currency in Greek myth is a human being. And that is why stories like Oedipus have such resonance through time and space. It's because it's all about one human being. And in that particular instance, they're suffering.
0: Yeah. So here you are, you've studied classics at university, and then what happens?
1: I fell for a handsome boy, and he thought I was very funny, and I thought he was very handsome. And in order to see him again, I said, oh, let's write something for Footlights, which was a comedy society, or still is a comedy society, at university. And then I'm afraid to say that I took him home that night, because it was the 90s and it was quite a racy time. And then a few days later, and he really was so beautiful, a few days later he turned up with a sketch he'd written, which was just terrible. And I thought, well, I can't tell him that because he's so good looking <laughs> so it would be better so I was like oh yeah I'm just working on something over here and that turned out to be stand-up because it didn't really occur I don't think I knew how to write dialogue you know I was only 18 19 maybe and so I he walked me to the audition for the gig and waited outside and so I went in and I was auditioned by uh, Robert Webb out of and Webb and James Barkman his uh, occasional partner in crime and they gave me a they gave me a slot to do stand up in the show which was like the next night so and and that was that was really something you know you play your first your first stand up gig should always be to whatever it is the adc theater holds 225 people or something because that is a way to find out that you love it
0: and you clearly did oh my goodness yeah i mean
1: i was nearly sick with nerves and that didn't leave me for years i mean literally years when people ask me about stand up they almost always say you must be really brave and i almost always reply the first 5 years are the worst but the first five years, <laughs> I was nearly sick with nerves every day. I would put gigs in my diary and I would dread them from the minute I wrote them down until they were over. You know, sometimes that could be four or five months. And every time myself, I saw them, I'd be like, oh, that's <laughs> going to be really hard. And, you know, it was, it was really difficult. But now I'll go on stage. I think you've seen me do this. I'll go on stage anywhere I don't care about. It's like, what's the worst that's going to happen? I have for sure lived through it. The gig's going to catch fire. Yep, been through that. Happened at Warwick University. <laughs> it's going to be fine.
0: Uh, so Natalie Haynes stands up for the classics. Yes. Of course, your your famous radio show, which came out of these performances.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I, I quit stand-up in about 2008 because I was tired, you know, I'd done it for a long time. You drive a lot and you drive a lot in the middle of the night. You see a lot of lorries going sort of slewing across three lanes and you think, oh yeah, one of these days you're going to take me out. Which isn't to say that lorry drivers are anything other than safe drivers, but sometimes they're doing long hours. eh? And so I kind of lost the enthusiasm for doing it and I'd started writing for newspapers and it's like, oh, I really would like to be writing books. And so in 2010, I published... Ancient Guide to Modern Life, which was a nonfiction book about the ancient and modern worlds. And I thought, well, I need to find a way to sell this. And I could just talk to people about it. Because you know, what it's like when you're a new author, it's quite a struggle to get people to invite you to book festivals and stuff where you sell books. And then when you do, you're on a panel with like three other people who've just written a book. And I'm just too much of a massive egomaniac to share a stage with other people. I was like, how, what are you doing on my stage? Are you in show business? Get off. And so I thought, well, I'll just, you know, like do a, I'll give a talk, you know, because I never think of it as stand up, even though the show is called Stand Up for the Classics because I know how hard stand up is and what it's like to be looking for a laugh every few seconds, not every few minutes. You know, generally people are coming to me now for a sort of funny lecture, which is much easier to do. But I thought, oh, I'll just I'll give like a talk and that'll be fine. And then they developed really quickly. And, of course, book festivals, seeing that you could just give me a solo space, which saves their costs, were delighted. And so the live shows, I would guess, of ancient guides, so I probably made more money from that than from the book because, for sure, it sold about eight copies. <laughs> <laughs> I should reprint it now. Anyway, it's too late.
0: Not my problem. So when you were, when you were doing stand-up, was that classic space? No, God, never. I would have been, oh, my God. <laughs> No. Because it's not exactly a love a minute. It's not a working men's like... class. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I didn't tell them about my interest in Latin. I wanted to get out <laughs> alive.
1: Yeah, no, I'm afraid I just used to talk about myself as a stand-up mostly. Um, I mean, in a way, lots of stand-ups are doing that. Confessional comedy was a big thing in the 90s and noughties, which is when I was sort of at my most doing of comedy, I guess. And even in Edinburgh, even when I was doing the Fringe, which was two thousand two, three, four, five, six, it's still you know I would do shows about me, and then I th- the last one was about TV detectives, which I have a great passion, so that I could talk basically about Jessica Fletcher and Murder She Wrote for a really long time, <laughs> Columbo, and which I'm an absolute expert. I have t- honestly, I have two books of notes on Columbo. Why? Well, partly because I wrote that show, and then I had a column in the Guardian for a year or so about TV detectives and I would I wanted to and would still like to but I don't know if I ever will write a novel about a Columbo obsessive but why don't you write your own TV detective I mean, I'm under contract to write books until I'm like 200, so I don't really have time. <laughs> but yeah, at some point I would love to. I wrote a detective story this year, um, so I have a Miss Marple story in that new collection of Miss Marple stories that came out on September 15th, the same day as Stoneblind, in fact. So I did get to write one murder mystery.
0: Let's let's talk about your books now. You've you've already mentioned Ancient Guide to Modern Life, yes. uh, but that wasn't your first book, was it? No, I wrote a children's book called The
1: Great Escape, which was published in 2007. It has structurally issue so I don't particularly recommend it. <laughs> I'm <laughs> delighted that they published it but if I'd been there I'd have told me to go away and restructure the second half.
0: But it did win an award for the best animal friendly children's yes. book.
1: well yes I mean that's the joy of putting a talking cat in it um, but yeah I think that, that's for sure the way to do it. Uh, but yeah no I, my mum would would be crying with misery at this point because she loves Great Escape but all I can see is that I should have read more Aristotle's Poetics before. <laughs> wrote the second half of it anyway it's I mean I hope it's charming and you know it has Pace, I think, and momentum, but it also has structure. Sorry, I'm not supposed to do this. I was supposed to say yeah, it's marvelous. Everything I've ever written is marvelous. But A
0: refreshing honesty, we love it. Yeah, no. uh, let's talk about uh, contributing to, to other books. As yes. you say, you've got this piece in the in the in the Miss Marple, but you also contributed to Fifty Shades of Feminism. I did. And... Don't ask me what I wrote about because <laughs> I for sure can't remember. <laughs> and alongside Monica's Andrew Muller, you were also in an atheist guide to Christmas. I can't remember that. <laughs> so sorry.
1: I had long COVID. I can't remember anything anymore. <laughs> I've got no idea what I wrote about. I'm sure you're right. It's on the shelf somewhere. <laughs> the And of Fury.
0: Yes, there you go. I definitely Finally, a book yeah. you remember. I do, yep. this yeah. This was in fact your first novel, wasn't it? Was,
1: it was, yeah. And so that's my only modern world novel so far. And it's set in Edinburgh and also in London. And it has three timelines. So it has a sort of a distant past tense timeline talking about things that happened a year ago, a bit more and an urgent past tense timeline in a different voice, a diary. So that's like what happened earlier today and a present tense timeline as the story plays out in these three different things. And so it was quite a, it was structurally quite an ambitious thing. I spent a lot of time planning it out and it's, it's structured like a play, so it's written in five acts, although it's it's not written in dialogue, it's you know, written in prose. But, and I had cards, coloured index cards, in three different colours for the three different timelines. And so it was like act one, scene two, act one, scene three. And I would work out what information needed to come out. Because I wanted to follow this Aristotelian principle that every scene should advance the plot and reveal character because it was about tragedy. It was about the sort of formal existence of tragedy at the same time as being a sort of murder mystery of itself. And there was a time when I looked at my floor and all these cards were placed out and I was sort of reordering them and I finally got them into the place where I could number them all because they were right. And I thought, this really reminds me of something I can't think what. And I was like, oh, if I added string, this would be the serial killer's house in all films ever. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I've done. (laughs) And I've got really spidery handwriting as well for maximum she has killed again. (laughs)
0: Giveaway clue. Oh <laughs> that book went down very well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I worked really hard at it for a really long time. That's why there's such a gap four years between Ancient Guide and Amber, because I well, to be fair, I guess I judged the Women's Prize Orange Prize as it was then and the Booker Prize between the two. So I, I did read a lot of books as well, yeah. about uh, three hundred and something, I guess. But yeah, I mean, it took a lot of time to to get
0: it right, and then people
1: liked it, but they didn't they didn't like it as much as they liked it when I wrote Ships. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Just before we go on to a thousand ships, that that um, that whole process of prize judging. Yes. I wonder how it informs your writing. Does it? Does it make you write in a different way? Or... Yeah, I
1: think it does. I think it does because the thing that you don't ever do. I don't ever do as a reader, I think, is actively seek out books in which you assume you won't have an interest. And when you're judging a prize, that's just part of it. You know, the books come in, especially for the booker. I read 151 books in 204 days. I didn't get to choose. I read them in the order they came in because we discussed them every 20 books or Mm -hmm. 25 books. And so it's like, well, just read what's next, what's next, what's next, what's next, what's next. And so you end up reading things you would never choose in a million years. And actually, it's weirdly disorienting in the long term. I remember standing in front of a, a bookshelf after I'd finished this mad prize judging sort of two and a half year period and not being able to it's like I don't know how to choose a book anymore. I don't know I don't know what I'd like. <laughs> I just read so much. But it means that you I would never choose kind of stream of consciousness, you know, largely plotless novels. I would always go, you know, crime fiction by choice. And then suddenly there there you are in this You know, it's like, oh, I see this thing that I had previously perhaps dismissed as a genre as being just too pretentious or too lyrical or too plotless or too whatever. It's like, oh, no, this is a different kind of masterpiece from any other kind Mm. I've ever read. I wouldn't have chosen it. And because of that, I have to have learned something from at least at least I've learned how to read better, even if I haven't learned how to write better. But you have to hope that you have. Mm. You know, I was always okay at character and plot, but I'm not sure I thought very much about Beauty of prose. All right, if I did, I thought of it as being just a sort of on a higher plane of lyricism than one I operate on. And then you read somebody who's got incredibly direct language, but is nonetheless creating poetry out of prose, like Ali Smith or Anne Enright, and you're like, oh, oh. <laughs> wait a minute, everyone, the bars are higher than I realised. <laughs> I'm going to have to limbo under it again.
0: I'm judging the Bailey Gifford at the moment. You've learned nothing.
1: So. <laughs> uh, How is it? So do you wish
0: you were dead yet? I, I do, yeah. actually, only because we've also got Cheltenham Literary Festival coming up, and yeah, so yeah. there's huge, huge oh, amount of stuff The to, first book to I read. reviewed
1: after finishing the booker was The Goldfinch <laughs>
0: It's oh like 800
1: pages long. I'm like, Please make it stop. Yeah. And the day I got to book 50, judging the book, at 50 books arrived in a single box. And the last book, I'm so bitter, the last book huh? that came, book 151, was 1,004 pages long. And I knelt down and wept in my hall. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just can't do anymore. It is like being bludgeoned. I read a book every other day for 100 days and then I read a book every day for a hundred days and our winner was 832 pages long Mm. so I read that three times
0: I mean it is it is brutal but exactly as you were saying you learn stuff that you You just think you you don't even need to know and I I can't give you examples because we haven't announced any of our lists yet but but subjects that I just had no interest in suddenly I see how completely fascinating they are but as you say you then see the beauty of prose and what what is actually done for me is make me think I am never ever Going to and hold me to this. Shoot me if I do it. Okay. I'm never Strong going to publish a book. Okay, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> because there's so much. There's a you, lot of books, you, aren't there? There are a lot, but also so many that are just beautifully written.
1: Yeah, but uh, quite a lot more that aren't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the thing. My my general feeling when Booker judging, and it was the same sort of percentages for the Women's Prize, and then the year after, I judged the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize, which has now been folded into the International Booker is that maybe out of 150 books, maybe 20 were really good and maybe 20 were just dismal Mm -hmm. and the majority of them were fine, you know. And it's like, well, I guess the question is, do you want to produce a book that's fine? Or do you want to try and, you know, do something to jump up or indeed to slide down? <laughs> it's like they're, they're both options open to you. So, yeah, I think that was my main takeaway was that there are an awful lot of really quite good books published. But if you wanted to sort of stand out from a pack, you were going to have to find a way through.
0: Well, you certainly did with A Thousand Ships. I mean, that was your feminist retelling of, it was. of the Trojan War. Tell us a little bit more about it. And that, of course, shortlisted for, for the Women's Prize.
1: Yeah, that was a really good day, a really mad day. I mean, no one ever talks about money, do they? Because, you know, everyone's too posh, but I'm not because I come from A, Birmingham and B, comedy. So um, <laughs> that happened just after the first lockdown, because I found out about three weeks before it was announced. And so maybe a week before that... I had watched, as all performers did, I watched six months of work fall out of my diary in 48 mm. hours. And I watched the whole thing go. One email, one text after another. Sorry, we'll just, Sorry. And I was like, okay, that's next month. Fair enough. And April, okay. Met, right. Aren't you being a bit neurotic? August, okay. And that I watched them all go. And I kind of sat there and thought, well, you know, I'm quite squirrely about money. I've, I can pay the mortgage for a few months. It'll probably be all right. And you know, maybe we'll get to start again, and maybe it'll all be fine, or maybe it won't. And I get, and then, you know, a week or two after that, I had the email that ships had been shortlisted for the Women's Prize, and because of that, I... so then the Americans bought it. It's like suddenly I was rich. Wow, this has been a, this has been quite the moment. <laughs> so yeah, I went from being properly like, how am I going to pay the bills? To oh, okay, this is the most money I've ever had, and I had no control over any of it. So it was a really strange. And I was sick. You know, I had COVID right at the beginning of COVID because I like to be an early adopter, as you know, (laughs) uh, and perhaps because I was on tour before social distancing was brought in, let alone lockdown. So it all felt very much beyond my control. The horrible things that were happening and the nice things that were happening all felt so separate. So it was quite a strange time and I felt quite distant from it in, in lots of ways. Not least because you know we'd published ships in May, I think, of 2019, and then it was shortlisted in March, maybe even April of 20. So it was like a year old by the time that all happened. It's like, oh, I'm writing another book now. <laughs> so yeah, but it was it was just kind of miraculous. The Women's Prize changed my life.
0: That's an amazing an amazing thing to hear because people often nobody ever talks about the money as as you uh, they say. They just don't, and I always yeah.
1: try to, especially when I talk to young people slash young writers is that it it really matters it's no good being an artist if you can't pay the bills and it's all very well to tell people that they need to you know grab moments to write in between their day job and this and that and the other great good news you enjoy trying to do that while also you know looking after a family or being a carer or whatever there's a lot on Mm -hmm. Um, and so yeah I, I know that we're all supposed to say that prizes don't matter but the the endorsement of the Women's Prize meant that publishers who hadn't been interested in my books in other countries were suddenly interested in them mm. and paid money for them and for the next one and for the next. And it, it was just an enormous difference. Mm. And they, you know, people had thought there was no market. You know, they for a really long time with ships, we'd been trying to sell it in the US before the Women's Prize shortlisting happened. And publishers had just I think for a while if you wanted to get a job in American publishing, you know the bit where they say at the end of the interview and have you got any other questions or comments, you had to say, Oh, I definitely wouldn't publish Nestle Haynes' novel Thousand and then it'll <laughs> have oh, yeah, come on in because it's like like twenty I mean <laughs> lots of people turned it down. And then suddenly, you know, like the following year when it was out, there was a week when it was like the best selling audiobook in America. <laughs> It turned out there was an audience. Great, that's good to know. So yeah, at any point, if you're feeling really rejected because everybody tells you that nobody wants what you've made, then try to bear in mind they might all actually be wrong. It doesn't always <laughs> happen, but occasionally it does.
0: I mean, in a way, you've you've created your own market by putting out such wonderful books at, at the beginning about Thanks. this specific subject, uh, about sort of centering women and uh, recentering them in, in yes. these myths. People just want more and more, don't they?
1: Well, let's hope so. Long may it continue, um, because. <laughs> You know, I mean, I I find it really strange when people are surprised by it, you know, because to me, women are the same thing as people. So it just seems weird to me that there haven't been loads of these already. I mean, it's, it's an absolute result for me because I've been reading these stories since I was really small you know I can read them in Latin I can read them in Greek I can read the fragments that none of this is difficult for me sometimes it's time consuming but none of it is hard and so I can live here for as long as people will buy the books I would live here anyway I would just be doing the research differently and and publishing to a, a different market, I suppose, I would mm. just go into academia if people lost interest. Uh, but
0: I mean, in Pandora's Jar, for instance, you have many of those those stories, yeah. and I guess these they're further explorations, aren't they? Tell us more about Stone It is Medusa, as it we said. It is Medusa. At the
1: yeah. No. So when I wrote Pandora, as you say, that's ten chapters of sort of essays on women from Greek myth. So that's a, a nonfiction book, looking at them from the outside, essentially, and looking at the way their stories were told in the ancient world and how that those stories have been received subsequently and retold and reinterpreted. And then when I got to Medusa's chapter, I just felt really angry for her. I mean, you know, they're, they're all kind of wronged women. Most women in myth have been mistreated through time. But I just, she's she's treated so badly, both in her myth and the treatment of her myth. I felt really hurt and really angry for her. And I thought, I'd, you know, I've written her 9,000 words basically saying you have her wrong. She isn't a monster. She's a monstered rape survivor. Mm-hmm. She is a woman who is assaulted and then punished for having been assaulted. This is where this mindset of punishing women for being hurt begins in at least a literary form and you know this is what we should be looking at and I wrote my 9,000 words or whatever and I thought I'm not done I'm just not done I still feel even now I'm saying it to you I can feel the hairs on my arm are going up I'm like I'm still really hurt for her and so I thought I would write her a novel and I expected it to be a single voice novel which I'd never write but I thought it would be I thought I'll just do it and then as always with me, they become polyphonic. You know, just get this huge kind of wah, 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 over here, over here type thing going well, it's on. Well, I mean, so,
0: we have a crow, we have an olive do. grove,
1: we have all sorts <laughs> yeah, of voices. You don't
0: just have to be a person to get a chapter in my... So yeah, some Even of it, the snakes on her head
1: speak. They do. So some of it is first person, some of it is third, you know, some of it, so it moves, you know, under the sea, up into Mount Olympus, and yes, as you say, into the animal kingdom and occasionally into the plant kingdom. So, yeah, it, it's a lot of voices. But that, I began it, in December of 2020? Can that be right? So the, the bulk of it was written through that last long winter lockdown and as it kind of went on I realised it's really it's really a kind of love story about family because of course I couldn't see mine. You know, I, My brother lives on the other side, did live on the other side of London he now lives somewhere else and my mum is 100 miles away north, my dad is 100 miles away west so I think I sort of wrote myself a you know, I don't want to say a better family because, you know, they might hear this, but you know, generally I would say I wrote myself a slightly, slightly less irritating family and put them in a book. I think it was the right choice.
0: It's a book that, I mean, it very tragic as its called the story, obviously, yes. but there's humour in it. I hope so. Yeah.
1: I mean, that that's the sort of hard thing about it, because I have always thought awful things happen to people who are funny and funny things happen when awful things happen. And that's just true. And maybe I'm more attuned to that, having been both a comedian and a tragedian, I guess, over the years. But it, I don't know. I don't find the two things to be separate at all. But it does mean that it's quite a it's quite a balancing act trying to create a novel which changes voice a lot and focus a lot and taking you from the bit where you're sort of up in Mount Olympus where generally there are no consequences and nobody cares because they're gods and they're unchanging. And so those scenes can be very funny. But then to take you down to scenes where people are being badly hurt and losing you know, bodily integrity or happiness or any hope of happiness or, you know, liberty or all of those kinds of things. Yeah, it was like, oh, I hope this isn't going to feel too jarring when you read it through, but hopefully I just managed to keep you.
0: Oh Moving. completely it's utterly gripping and just just so wonderful to see the the other side of the story and to to hear it i mean so many modern parallels aren't there it there are
1: just... yeah i mean there are the, the notion of these of a predatory man with power exerting that power over a woman who has none or as happens in this book and i think happens a great deal or weaponizing the tiny bit of power she has to use it against her, it was very hard to write. I can't lie, and it was actually it was really hard to read because I did the audiobook and it was really hard to read those bits. Uh, me and Lydia and my producer were sort of looking at each other through the glass, like, I <laughs> "Don't like this bit. Like, can we have a nice bit again? Where's the crow?" So yeah, did you do crow voices? I absolutely did crow voices because I checked with some uh, with Greek with Greek friends the noise that crows. Because of course, animals make different. Noises in different languages. All right. So I was like, What what noise <laughs> This is the joy of social media. <laughs> you just announce one morning, what noise do crows make in Greek? And then eighteen <laughs> Greek women reply, Kra kra And you go, Oh great, thank you, thank you <laughs> immediately gets back to
0: work. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, if you want to hear Natalie impersonating a Greek crow, then you can download the audiobook of Stone Blind, Better Still, Buy Yourself, the hard copy. Uh, it's by Natalie Haynes, it's published by Mantle, and it's out now. Natalie, thank you so much for for talking to me. It was my absolute pleasure. That was Natalie Haynes on Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hull and Lillian Fawcett. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website and all major podcast platforms. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.